Did you know that it is harder to get hired at Procter & Gamble than it is to get into Harvard? They are so selective that less than 1% of their applicants for employment are hired a year. Harvard accepts around 4.5%. I love to hear that my companies are only hiring the best of the best. What's up everybody? Gen X Dividend Investor here. Today in my 21st stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of Procter & Gamble my fifth largest dividend stock by portfolio value of the 25 I own. That means that after this I only have four stocks to go. And if you are somebody who likes this video or Procter & Gamble, then clean that like button as a thank you to me for making this extensive and free deep analysis video. Now I'd like to invite you to join the Dividend Discord chat server that I have recently started, which is now approaching 600 dividend interested people that are already on it. Join and become one of the original founding members of our quickly growing dividend investing chat community. There are people in the chat that have never invested but are interested in learning, all the way up to multiple people who became millionaires through investing that are on this dividend discord chat server. I had one sub say that he wasn't sure if he should join because he had never invested and didn't know how to use discord. I responded that the community I'm building is for everyone and that discord is super easy to use both from a browser or on your phone. Also, I had a sub ask me if I would put the portion of my portfolio that I've revealed so far into an M1 pie and include it as a link in my video description, so I've done that. Check out my portfolio of the stocks I've revealed so far, including their relative allocation percentages, represented in an M1 pie if you are so inclined. Now I'm a noob to M1, but I can say that in the few days I've had it, I've enjoyed how the user interface looks. Now I strongly recommend that you don't copy what I have in my portfolio. Remember, everyone has their own risk tolerances, financial situations, goals, and perspectives. And me buying a stock at a certain point in time for my portfolio does not mean it would make sense for you to buy it at a different point in time for your portfolio. That being said, if you'd like to sign up to M1 for a new brokerage account so you can start dividend investing using it, then please consider using my M1 referral link that I'll also include in the description below. M1 seems to run promotions that give you free stuff when you open a new non-retirement brokerage account using someone's referral link and you transfer some money into your new account. Like when I signed up I got a free $20 from them. I don't know what promotion they're running when you click on that link, but I'm guessing it's something. Now I wanted to ask you this quick question. Do you know the fastest way to end up with a million dollars from penny stocks? Invest two million. Alright, now with that little joke over, I want to show you a reason why I prefer buy and hold strategies versus others. This is a chart from Richard Bernstein of Richard Bernstein Advisors who looked at 20 years of mutual fund data to create this graph. We see that the top four gainers are energy followed by healthcare, technology, and consumer staples. And what are the bottom four? Well from worst to least worst are Japan, inflation, emerging markets Asia, and then the average investor. The guy who created this chart said that the performance of the typical investor over this time period is shockingly poor. The average investor has underperformed every category except Asian emerging markets and Japanese equities. The average investor even underperformed cash, which is listed here as three-month treasury bills. They could have improved performance by simply buying and holding any asset class other than Asian emerging markets or Japanese equities. Thus, their underperformance suggests investors' timing of asset allocation decisions must have been particularly poor i.e. investors consistently bought assets that were overvalued and sold assets that were undervalued. They bought high and sold low. And when chaos occurred, investors ran away. In fact, I read an anecdote that said that Fidelity did a study as to which accounts had done the best at their firm. 
And what they found was that the best performing brokerage accounts were the accounts of people who had forgotten they even had an account at Fidelity. To quote Warren Buffett's mentor Benjamin Graham, in the short run, the market is like a voting machine, tallying up which firms are popular and unpopular. But in the long run, the market is like a weighing machine, assessing the substance of a company. So that's something I like to think about when I'm about to hit the sell button. Am I selling because I need the cash for an emergency? Am I selling because I believe I found a better investment? Am I selling because the fundamentals of the business and or its potential have materially changed? Or am I selling because of some YouTube video or some news headline is scaring me? Something to think about. Finally, a sub asked me if I could move my portfolio review to earlier in my videos, which is something I've done before. So I thought I would try that out for this video and then I'll dive into a deep analysis of Procter & Gamble and then I'll end this video with the screenshots of the Kimberly Clark dividend checks I received after I released my Duke Energy video last week. Alright, here we are in a copy of my portfolio where it lists 21 of the 25 stocks that I have. And I have four more to reveal after this. So, let's kind of go around the portfolio allocations. We can start with consumer staples right here. And so this slice includes Procter & Gamble, Kimberly Clark, and Colgate-Palmolive, and it's 18.5%. And then this one right here is O, so it's real estate, and it's 8% of the portfolio. This one right here is AT&T, communication services, it's 7.8%. This one right here is consumer staples food beverages with Coke, 7.7%. This slice right here is consumer discretionary, McDonald's, Starbucks, Home Depot, and Disney at 12.9%. And then this one right here is energy with Chevron and Exxon at 6.8%. This one is healthcare with AbbVie and Pfizer at 5.3%. This one is financials with Goldman Sachs and Travelers at 4.1%. And then we have industrials here with 3M Legged Cat at 14.8%. Finally, we have utilities with Duke and Southern at 14%. And then we've had some movement within the various holdings. So right now we see PG is here on my list because 3M's gone up and blah, blah, blah. So we see I have 756.7 shares of Procter & Gamble and it's gone up in the last year. We see the current PE is high at 76, and we'll talk about that. The forward PE is 25.5. DDM is $24 if you take a 12% return, 33% margin of safety, which obviously is high. Uh, they're in the consumer staples segment, household goods. Currently, they hold about an 8% of my portfolio for these stocks, of these 21 stocks. That'll change once all 25 are in. Annual dividend is $2.98, and then their next dividend payout, I believe, is February 15th. The dividend yield is about 2.41%, their three-year dividend cadre is 2.9%, five-year dividend cadre at 3.1%, and their 10-year dividend cadre at 5.7%. Manually, I calculated the five-year dividend cadre at 3.58%, so they're the portfolio's average weighted dividend, five-year dividend cadre is 6.95%, and the portfolio's initial starting yield is 3.41%. I have $93,390 worth of Procter & Gamble, 
and that's dripping $2,255 a year. That brings the portfolio value so far to $1,158,934 and it's dripping $39,540 per year. They have a good healthy payout ratio of 50%. They have 129 years of dividend data and of that they've consecutively increased it for 63 years with no cuts or delays that I found. And we see that so far the portfolio has an average weighted years of increasing dividends at 37 years. So you can see this is really a, a metric that I value. It is an aristocrat and a king. Beta is low. So the portfolio's average weighted beta is 0.6 now. So the average weighted market cap is 144.42 billion. Okay, now it's time for another deep analysis. Procter & Gamble, ticker PG, is a 183-year-old, $306 billion market cap, $68 billion revenue, 97,000 employee, American multinational consumer goods corporation that sells a slew of personal care and hygiene products. Their massive product suite spans five business segments, which are number one, fabric and home care, which is about 33% of their revenue. Number two is baby feminine and family care at 27%. Number three is beauty at 19%. Number four is healthcare at 12%. And then number five is grooming at 9%. North America represents 45% of the revenue, which means the majority of the revenue comes internationally. I love that. I feel like I'm getting an international play while holding a great company on US exchanges. Procter & Gamble is positioned well and are dominating the powerful younger demographic. 17 of their top 20 brands are either number one or number two with millennials. They are taking steps to expand what that consumer often looks for, which are things like naturals and organic brands. PG has some of the world's strongest and most well-known brands, including Crest Toothpaste, which I've used, Charmin Toilet Paper, which I've used, Bounty Paper Towels, which I've used, Always Menstrual Hygiene Products, which I've not used, Dawn Dishwashing Liquid, which I've used, Downy Fabric Softer and Dryer Sheets, which I've used, Febreze Odor Eliminator, which I haven't used, Gain Laundry Detergents, which I haven't used, Gillette razors and associated products, which I've used. Head and shoulder shampoo, which I've used. Olay personal and beauty products, which my mom has used. Oral-B dental products, including Glide dental floss, which we use. Pampers diapers, which we've used. Pantene hair care products, which my wife has used. Tide laundry detergents and products, which we use. And Vicks cough and cold products, amongst others, which I've used. They have paid a dividend back to stockholders for 129 consecutive years, increasing it in each of the past 63 years, making it one of the most prestigious of the exclusive dividend kings. Now, while they are an incredible company, they have been falling short for a while with stagnating growth. Part of what we will find is that until last year, Procter & Gamble had failed to adequately grow its revenues and net income for the majority of the last decade. I believe this is happening due to more cost-conscious consumers who are more likely to use non-brand items when they go shopping. There are ever-increasing amounts of private-label products, and that, coupled with price wars, can make companies like Procter & Gamble struggle to keep growing. PG is responding with a variety of strategies, and it looks like those strategies are starting to pay off. They are doing things like restructuring their business to become more efficient and are selling off their lower-margin, lower-growth brands. Here's some data that Procter & Gamble recently shared that show they have some stellar metrics as compared to peers in their industry. Their core operating margin is third highest amongst their peer group. They have the fourth lowest interest rates. They have the second lowest effective tax rates. 
and they have the second highest after-tax profit margins. So that shows why PG is considered as one of the best of the best and why I have a material position in my dividend portfolio with them. Let's see where PG is from an industry and sector perspective. We see that they're in the consumer staple sector and in the household products and personal products industries. Okay, let's check out who the largest institutional holders of PG are. We see that Vanguard is number one with about 221 million shares worth about $27 billion, which is 8.9% of outstanding shares. The largest insider I found was their CEO, David Taylor, who has about 278,000 shares worth about $34 million. That means the shares could drip around $827,000 a year. That's a lot of pampers. Okay, now let's look at some of their main competitors. They have a variety of great competitors spanning their various product segments, including names like Colgate-Palmolive, Dabur, Church & Dwight, GlaxoSmithKline, Estee Lauder, and Unilever, to name a few. I decided that it would be useful to use Colgate-Palmolive to compare them to, since they compete with one another in a variety of segments, including in beauty care, health care, fabric care, baby and feminine, and family care. Colgate-Palmolive, ticker CL, is a 214-year-old, $15-plus-billion-dollar market cap, $68-billion-dollar revenue, 34,000-employee American Multinational Consumer Goods Corporation. Since I already covered Colgate-Palmolive in a previous video, you should have great context in this comparison. That being said, if you haven't watched my Colgate-Palmolive video or don't remember it, then I recommend you watch it after this video. Now, one thing I've concluded as an investor is to learn as much as you can about what you invest in or want to invest in as it can really help improve your investing outcomes. Besides, when you invest, you become an owner, so you really should know your own businesses. In 2019, PG was ranked as the 15th best, most effectively managed company in America by the Drucker Institute. To measure companies, the Drucker Institute used 34 indicators that fall under five dimensions of corporate performance, which are number one, customer sat, number two, employee engagement and development, number three, innovation, number four, social responsibility, and number five, financial strength. Let's check how Procter & Gamble and Colgate-Palmolive compare on Fortune's lists. So on the Fortune 500, we see that PG is ranked at 45, sandwiched between MetLife and United Technologies. CL is ranked at 202 between SuperValue and Goodyear. Let's see how they rank compared to all companies in the world. Here we see that PG made the Fortune Global 500 list at number 146 in the world. Colgate wasn't big enough. Please watch my Like It and Plant video if you want to hear some fascinating facts about the top 10 companies in the world. Let's see how they rank on Fortune's most valuable brands list. Here we find that Colgate is ranked 69 in terms of their company names and valuable brands, but Procter & Gamble doesn't break the top 100. However, we do see that Procter & Gamble is 31st on the list of Fortune's world's most admired companies. Okay, let's jump into a brief history of Procter & Gamble. The history of Procter & Gamble can show you how random life can be and how you have to persist through adversity if you want to succeed. Procter & Gamble was founded by two men, as you might have guessed, William Procter and James Gamble. William was born in 1801 in England, and his first job was as a boy where he learned to make candles while being a general store apprentice. Being entrepreneurial, he decided to open his own general goods store. But the day after he opened, he was robbed, leaving Procter $8,000 in debt, which is the equivalent of saying $240,000 in debt in today's inflation-adjusted dollars. That was a large amount of money for him, and he decided to start over in the U.S. with his wife. Unfortunately, during the trip, his wife died. Proctor went to Ohio and took a job working in a bank, but he took on a side hustle of making candles to help pay off his debts faster. Luckily, the town he lived in had a large meatpacking industry, which meant there was a lot of inexpensive fat and oil byproducts. 
so he could make candles inexpensively and sell them for a nice profit. That's when and where he met his next wife, Olivia Norris, who was the oldest daughter of a candle maker in town named Alexander Norris. Now let's jump to the other hero in our story, James Gamble. James was born in Ireland in 1803 and then immigrated to America in 1819 along with a lot of other folks from Ireland. His first job in the US was as an apprentice soap maker. After he learned the skills of soap making, he partnered with a friend to open their own soap and candle shop. He fell in love and married Elizabeth Norris, the second daughter of Alexander Norris. So that's how Procter and Gamble met. They both married a daughter of Alexander Norris's. Father-in-law Alexander noticed that his two new son-in-laws were competing for the same fat and oils needed to make soap and candles in their respective stores. He suggested they partner up and they agreed, and in 1837 they formed the Procter and Gamble Company worth a total of about $7,000 or about $187,000 in today's adjusted dollars. Now at the same time that they formed Procter and Gamble, the nation was going through a depression. But PG's managed to survive because their materials to make their goods were so cheap. Around 1850, Procter & Gamble created their logo which looked like a man overlooking 13 stars which represented 13 colonies. During the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865, the company had contracts with the Union Army supplying them with soap and candles. In the 1880s, they started selling a new product they created, a cheap brand of soap that could float in water that they called ivory soap, and it was a big hit with consumers. By 1890, they were selling over 30 different kinds of soap. In 1955, they sold the first toothpaste to contain fluoride in it, called Crest. I remember growing up in a Crest household. In 1961, they released another mega hit, Pampers, which helped wean people off of cloth diapers that had always been used. After having two kids, I can tell you I would not be a fan of cloth diapers. In 1985, they created a new logo to replace the original one they had created in the 1850s, rumored because some people thought that their original logo looked satanical. Who has that much free time to analyze and comment on a company's logo? I mean, I guess I am right now, but still. Okay, let's look at some of their current business strategies. PG Management has focused their strategies around various themes to enable growth and create value. In 2012, the company initiated a productivity and cost savings plan to reduce costs and better leverage scale in the areas of supply chain, research and development, marketing, and overhead. The plan was designed to accelerate cost reductions by streamlining management decision-making, manufacturing, and other work processes to fund the company's growth strategies. While they are still reducing costs and enhancing productivity, they have five key strategic themes they are following. Number one is having a focused portfolio. They decreased their brands from 170 down to 65 and decreased from 16 categories down to 10. This focus on higher margin, better growth brands should help to act as a catalyst for PG in years to come. Their 10 new categories are daily use products where performance drives brand choice. This includes fabric care, home care, baby care, and a slew of others. Their number two strategic theme is extending their margin of competitive superiority around product, package, brand communication, retail execution, and value. Their number three strategic theme is around productivity. They are optimizing their supply chain and are better targeting their media spend to enable profitability. I love it. Their number four strategic theme to enable growth and create shareholder value is via creative disruption. They are investing in innovation and are leveraging data and analytics, amongst others, to enable their strategic goals. Their CEO insists that under his leadership, PG will once again create innovative products. He is reorganizing the company's R&D functions to better empower product category leaders who he feels are best positioned to react to market changes. Or to put it another way, he is empowering people who are closest to the work to make product decisions to help enable new innovative delivery. Their fifth strategic theme is around organizational improvements. 
They've created a new focused, agile, and more accountable organization to enable operating at the speed of the market. Thematically, it looks like to me that they are swinging the pendulum from a centralized and matrix model to a federated model. This will give greater ownership and clarity of accountability to specific management, as well as for all employees. Their goal is for this to accelerate growth and value creation. I see the cycle repeat itself in businesses over and over. The pendulum swings from centralized to federated and back again. Each has its own pros and cons, and is often a productive change, assuming they remember and have applied learnings from their lessons which previously caused them to swing the other way. Management believes that these various strategies will enable them to number one, deliver total shareholder value return in the top one-third of their peer group, number two, achieve organic sales growth above market growth rates in the categories and geographies in which they compete, number three, enable core EPS growth of mid to high single digits, and number four, achieve adjusted free cash flow productivity of 90% or greater. So I feel that these changes, coupled with them pushing harder into online sales as well as into Asia, should enable growth. Okay, let's jump into their financials. Now there are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing a business. And they are number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how's their profitability? Let's start with number one. There are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? And they are number one, is revenue growing? Number two, are earnings growing? Number three, is equity growing? Number four, is cash flow growing? Number five is the dividend growing, and number six is the stock price growing. So let's start with number one of six. Let's look at the revenue growth history for both Procter Gamble and Colgate Palmolive on Macrotrends.net, Guru Focus, Yahoo Finance, and Zacks. P&G's revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 68.8 billion, a 2.9% increase year over year. Their 2020 estimate is for 72.9 billion. Sales revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 15.5 billion, a 0.9% decline year over year. Their 2020 estimate is for 16.1 billion. So we see that PG sales have stagnated for some of the last decade, but since 2016, they've been on an increasing trend, so their strategy seemed to be working. This data shows that in 2019, nine of their 10 product categories are growing and that all of their top markets are growing or holding, which is excellent news. We see that in 2019, relative to previous years, their beauty segment is increasing on the top line and bottom line, as is healthcare and fabric and home care. We see they have lost ground in grooming and baby and feminine family care, other than in net income for baby, which increased. So let's look at PG's net income trending over time and compare that to CL's. So number two of six are earnings growing. PG's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 4.3 billion, a 57% decline year over year. Their 2020 estimate is at 5.2 billion. Sales net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 2.3 billion, a 10% increase year over year. And their 2020 estimate is for 2.97 billion. So we see that Procter & Gamble had a big drop in net income from 331.19, where their net income was 11 billion, to 630.19, where their net income fell to 3.9 billion. So I dug into this and looking in the old quarterlies, I found that their diluted net earnings per share decreased by 61% versus the prior year due primarily to the accounting adjustments to carrying values of the Gillette Shave Care business. This also means that the reported operating profit margin was negative in the period due to Gillette Shave Care adjustments. So we should be prepared to see their PE spike up and their EPS crash due to this. Okay, onto number three of six is equity growing. 
Procter & Gamble's shareholder equity for 2018 was $52.8 billion, a 5.2% decline from 2017. CL's shareholder equity for 2018 was $0.2 billion, a 19% decline from 2017. So neither of those trends look appealing. Okay, let's move on to number four of six. Is cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about cash flow. We see that Procter & Gamble has a great and increasing free cash flow year over year, starting at $9.4 billion and ending at a trailing 12 months of $12.5 billion. CL also has an increasing free cash flow going from $2.5 billion to $2.7 billion. So I like what I see for PG here with their ample and growing free cash flow. Okay, now let's move on to number five of six, is the dividend growing? We see Procter & Gamble on the left and CL on the right. Both of them have beautiful dividend growth trend lines, and both have had stock splits, which is denoted as the S in the graphs. We see that both of their share prices have increased in the last 365 days, as denoted by their green spark lines. We see that PG's PE is a high 76, as we surmise. We see that CL's PE is a high 25.3, albeit not as high as PG's. PG's forward PE is a 23.8, compared to CL's lower 23.2. We see that PAG's dividend in Q1 of 2019 was $2.87 per share, compared to CL's at $1.68 per share. PG's three-year dividend cadre is a weak 2.9%, compared to CL's at 3.4%, still low to what I like to see. PG's five-year dividend cadre is a poor 3.1%, compared to CL's mediocre 4.3%. PG's 10-year dividend cadre is a decent 5.7%, compared to CL's, which is nicer, and about what I look for, at 7.8%. But PG's current dividend yield is a weak 2.34% as of the time I did this as compared to CL's at 2.45%, also weak sauce. What we're seeing now in the market is that solid quality defensive stocks like Procter & Gamble have had a big run-up, resulting in a weak yield. PG's 10-year estimated yield on costs is a weak 3.32% as compared to CL's, which is also weak at 3.74%. A sub asked me if I could elaborate what the estimated yield on costs meant in my spreadsheet, like the 10-year yield on costs. What it means is that if the dividend compound annual growth rate holds true for the next 10 years, then that estimate is what my yield on cost would look like. Or to put it differently, in 10 years, if previous trends holds true, then I could expect to hit 3.32% for PG, which is low. Normally, I'd like to see 10% plus. The longer time goes on, the more your relative original yield on cost will be. I'm using a five-year dividend compound annual growth rate to estimate future growth. That being said, my original yield on cost has never really mattered to me that much. Primarily what matters to me is the number of shares I have today and the dividend they are currently paying each year. It doesn't matter to me that I first bought a few shares of Procter & Gamble under 20 in the 90s. Instead, I care about today and I care about tomorrow. And again, I don't advocate for you to look at things that way. I'm just telling you how I look at things and what matters to me. So overall, I'm underwhelmed where they stand today. Okay, let's look at what's going on with shares outstanding. Procter & Gamble's shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 were $2.6 billion a 1.4% increase year-over-year. Year. CL's shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 were $0.86 billion, a 1.1% decline year-over-year. Year. Companies typically issue more shares when they need to raise capital through equity financing, or for reasons such as acquisitions and mergers, or internal reasons like exercising employee stock options and such. So overall, both have decent trends. Finally, number six of six, is the stock price growing? To help us answer the question, is a company growing? Let's look at total returns of PG compared to CL and to the S&P 500 using Dividend Channel's Total Returns Drip Calculator. This models what would have happened if you invested $10,000 around 25 years ago. We see that your 10K would have turned into about 130K for PG 
an awesome 1,202% return. Your 10K would have turned into 127K for CL, a similarly awesome 1,165% return. And then your 10K in the S&P 500 would have turned into 88K, a nice 776% return. So PG takes this one. Okay, let's move on to number two. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It is important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3%. We see the PG's current ratio is 0.73 and the industry median is 1.58, which ranks it lower than 89% of its industry. CL's current ratio is 1.03 compared to the industry median 1.58, which ranks it lower than 77% of the industry. So they're both under the industry medians, but not at points I'm seriously concerned. The number three next main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it's taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. I only listed PGs because CL's had some rendering issues on the site. Remember, debt to equity is total liabilities divided by total equity. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it's smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. I like to see between one to 1.5. A high debt to equity ratio is often associated with high risks. It is often means a business is pushing for fast growth with debt. That being said, the appropriate debt to equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others. Capital intensive industries can have higher ratios. So we see PG's debt to equity at 0.63 versus an industry median 0.44, which ranks them lower than 61% of the industry. So not great, but I'm not disconcerted. Okay, let's see if we think they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. Procter & Gamble's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 6.2 billion, a 53% decline year over year. Colgate Palmolive's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 3.5 billion, a 6.6% decline year over year. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times net interest. Looking at their income statements, we see that both of them cover. So let's look at return on equity or their earnings power. Normally I expect to see 10 to 15% to cover their cost of capital and to make money for shareholders, but the more the better. So RV tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has in shareholder equity. ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders' equity, also known as book value. I'm just looking at PG's ROE relative to their industry because sales didn't work out on macro trends. We see that PG's ROE is 8.4% compared to the industry median 5.9%, ranking them higher than 58% of the industry. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want a more detailed explanation of ROE, which goes into some of its nuances. Another metric worth evaluating is return on invested capital, but I'll leave that exercise to you. Okay, let's look at return on assets, ROA, as a measure of profitability. ROA will tell us how efficiently a company is squeezing profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all the money it has and uses that to make more money. It's a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. PG's ROA is 3.6% versus an industry median 2.8%, which ranks them higher than 56% of the industry. CL's ROA is 17.5% versus an industry median 2.8%, which ranks them higher than 94% of the industry. 
So PG looks decent here, and Colgate Palmolive crushes it. Okay, the next profitability metric we will look at is the net margin. I like the net profit margin because it is a decent metric and just a single figure to gauge how effectively management is running the business. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Watch my previous videos for more details. Solid net profit margins can mean a stronger company that is able to survive challenging economic times. PG's net margin is 6.2% compared to an industry net margin of about 3%, which ranks it higher than 70% of the industry. CL's net margin is 15% versus an industry net margin of about 3%, which ranks it higher than 91% of the industry. So both are doing well here with CL coming out on top. Okay, let's look at one final profitability measure, which is earnings per share, or EPS. EPS is a company's profit divided by the number of common shares outstanding. EPS shows how much money a company makes for each share of its stock. A higher EPS often means that people will pay more for a company due to their higher profits. Sometimes people like to utilize diluted EPS rather than basic EPS in their analysis. Procter & Gamble's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $1.57, a 59% decline year over year. Colgate Palmolive's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $2.70, an 11.57% increase year over year. So we see what we expected, a large drop off in EPS due to the adjustment they took to the Gillette Shave Care transaction. I would guess that Procter & Gamble will start seeing good EPS growth at a decent clip due to sales growth and margin expansion. Their strategies of cost control and focus should yield them improvements. Okay, let's move from their financials to their community involvement, charitable giving, and their environmental, social, and governance work. Procter & Gamble has a variety of goals to make a more positive impact on the world. They have one goal to reduce their use of virgin petroleum plastic and packaging by 50%. They are also committed to achieve 100% recyclable or reusable packaging by 2030. They want to reduce their footprint and aim for circular solutions based on regeneration and restoration. They have a goal of 100% renewable electricity and cutting GHG emissions in half at PG sites. They have a goal for the sites to deliver 35% increase in water efficiency. They also have a goal to protect and enhance the forests they depend on. They want to increase their use of Forest Stewardship Council certified fiber to 75% across all family care brands by 2025. They have a goal to create solutions so no packaging finds its way to the ocean. Procter & Gamble partnered with National Geographic and Global Citizen to create Activate, a six-episode series focused on eradicating poverty and achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The episodes highlight sustainable sourcing, racial bias, disaster relief, girls' education, plastic waste, and the global water crisis. They also created the Children's Safe Drinking Water Program. In partnership with more than 150 organizations around the world, they achieved their goal of providing 15 billion liters of clean drinking water. They are now accelerating their efforts to help provide clean drinking water to even more people by delivering 25 billion liters worldwide by 2025. Last year, they provided disaster relief to those impacted by more than 25 global disasters, including the massive wildfires in California and hurricanes Florence and Michael. They have donated millions of products around the world to people in need. They have helped build and renovate more than 200 Hope schools in China. Okay, let's move to their executive team. I added up the years of experience that the senior leadership team has at Procter & Gamble, and just amongst them, it was 976 years of experience. That means they average about an incredible 30 years of service at Procter & Gamble. Amazing. Taylor became the third CEO of Procter & Gamble in three years on November 1, 2015, after having worked in Procter & Gamble for about 35 years. Before CEO, he was responsible for a variety of brands including Crest, Oral-B, Head & Shoulders, Olay, Gillette, Fusion, Mach 3, Pantene, and Vicks. 
He was a double E major at Duke and graduated in 1980 and joined PG as a plant manager before rising all the way up through the ranks. He also is on the board of directors of Delta Airlines and serves as the chairman of the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, a group who's trying to eliminate unmanaged plastic waste in the environment. He also is on the board for Feeding America, which is about helping people in the U.S. who have food insecurity. One way we can assess how a CEO is performing is to look at how their stock has done since they have taken office. Here we see PG in black, SPY in blue, and CL in purple. We see that PG and SPY have performed similarly since Mr. Taylor became CEO, with a minor edge to PG, so that's great. We see that CL has significantly underperformed during this time frame. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. Like all companies, there are a variety of potential risks one should consider when investing. A macro risk I feel PG faces is that of Amazon. As more people continue to buy online and buy non-brands online, companies like PG can come under increasing negative risks to its top and bottom lines. Conversely, they could partner with Amazon and potentially minimize the risk, at least for a period of time. Another risk they face is that of private label products that are on the rise. Those are household products that the grocery store chains create themselves that are often cheaper than Procter & Gamble's. Another risk is the constant threat from their competitors dropping their prices. I noticed that around 15% of PG's total sales in 2019 were from Walmart, so I'm concerned about an over-reliance on one account like that. There is also consolidation happening in retail, much like all over, and a risk is that PG starts getting muscled to drop prices as they lose their leverage. Or even if they don't get muscled, they may need to increase their marketing spendings to ensure they keep drawing customers. Foreign currency exchanges are a risk because more than half of their sales come internationally from more than 180 countries and territories around the world, which itself is a challenge and potential risk because that means they are exposed to lots of regulations or political changes such as what is happening with Brexit. And then of course operating in so many locations increases the risk that one of those locations experiences a bad event. So political and economic instability can negatively impact them. While I love getting a lot of my revenue internationally, it does come with its challenges. Another issue is that they need to grow more in large growth markets. Tariffs are another issue they face, as are commodity prices. Transportation costs can also impact them. Natural disasters and extreme weather can impact their supply chain, which can impact their financials. Of course, their market penetration is so high, it can be challenging to find real growth. Now, unlike many other companies, it's possible a recession fear could actually help bolster PG, as I feel it has already been doing as people rush to what they believe will be safer defensive investments. So that could lead to further new all-time highs for PG, at least as long as the bubble keeps expanding. Regulatory and tax changes could impact them in a positive or negative way. Acquisitions they have done and are planning to do might not perform as expected, which could materially impact their top and bottom lines. Adverse outcomes of litigation could impact them. As they've become more dependent on technology, then outages or cybersecurity incidents could negatively impact them. So those are some of the risks you might want to consider in your investing decisions. Okay, let's talk about what some of my thoughts are on price, starting with PEs. We see that PG's PE is 75.55, the industry median is 25.32, and their forward PE is 25.32. Seals PE is 25.03 versus an industry median 25.32, and a forward PE of 43.42. So we see an interesting price to earnings trend line for PG where it spikes. That spike in PE correlates to a large drop in net income where it fell from 11 billion to 3.9 billion. So bottom line, neither PE looks compelling. What happened with PG is that in mid-year they had a non-cash charge to adjust the carrying value of Gillette Shave Care Goodwill and trade name intangible assets. 
Now, one metric I haven't talked about is using free cash flow yield as an alternative and potentially better indicator than PE ratio. If you'd like to hear more about it in a future video, then drop a comment down below. Also, please watch my AbbVie video if you want to learn more about the S&P 500 PE ratios. Okay, another final trend that you might want to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into your buying decisions. Here are the last 10 years of dividend yield trends for PG and CL. PG's yield is 2.41% and CL's is 2.5%. Both are lower than I normally like to see, which is low threes. PG has been slowly trending down, which means it has been getting pricier. Remember, yield is their annual dividend they pay out divided by share price. So if this line is flat, then it's one indicator that its relative value has stayed flat when looking at this metric in isolation. If the line trends downhill, then it probably indicates that it's getting pricier, and if it trends up, then it indicates that it's potentially becoming more of a value play worth considering. It will have a tendency to trend up if they increase their annual dividend payout, or if the share price goes down. It will trend down if the share price goes up relative to the dividend payout. So the ideal is to buy the yield when it's high, and then see the line trend down because its share price is going up after you buy it. Of course, if the share price goes down, then your drip can buy more shares. So between the share price and annual dividend changes, the relative price of PG is getting too spendy as of late, while Colgate doesn't look materially different. Let's look at what the analysts at MarketBeat think about PG and CL. Today we see PG's consensus rating a hold as compared to six months ago when it was also a hold. Price today is around $122.75 compared to a consensus target of $118.53 which is a 3.44% downside. CL's consensus rating today is a hold compared to its six months ago, which is also a hold. Its price today is $68.49 compared to its consensus target of $72.85, which is a 6.36% upside. So here we see that the professionals believe that there is a marginal downside for PG and a marginal upside for Colgate. Now let's look at insider trading. We see a variety of transactions by their officers and directors. Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about how to read a form forward dealing with insider trading. Now on this one, something material does jump out at me. Take a look at these transactions. We see one that is over $100 million by a board member, Nelson Peitz. Who is Nelson Peitz? He's an activist investor who put around $3 billion into PG stock with his firm, Tryon Fund Management, which gave him a 1.5 stake in the company and made him one of the top five of their investors. He got in around $84 per share a little over three years ago. But he had a bunch of issues with Procter & Gamble. He thought that the company's results weren't where they needed to be. He didn't like their organizational structure. He felt they were too bureaucratic. And so he suggested that they consolidate down from five business units into three, amongst other changes. Procter & Gamble's management's response was that they were restructuring to become a better company. Regardless, he waged war to get a board seat, and they actually ended up offering one to him. Well, it looks like recently he felt the price was good, so he took some nice profits. Quick math shows he made over a billion dollars in his Procter & Gamble investment, not to mention hundreds of millions in dividends. So what's my takeaway from this? Well, it's that sometimes smart people take profit off the table. He isn't a buy and hold forever guy like Buffett. He's a make money guy. So he made a ton and he wants to lock in some of his gains. So you need to figure out if that means anything for you. What about me? When did I buy PG and what price would I want to see before I might be compelled to add more to my position? As always, don't take this as financial advice. PG was a company I used to own, then I got out of it for a reason I'll go into in a future video, and then got back into it in early August of 2018 at $82. But today's price of $123 seems too high for me, as do most quality stocks. Companies like Procter & Gamble and McDonald's and Coke are like my utilities. They are my bond proxies. 
but with all the fears of market crashes and yield curve inversions and such, more people have fled into the perceived safety of companies like Procter & Gamble. Combine that with long-term interest rates that have been ticking down, and we have a situation that drives even more investors into companies like PG that have an okay yield. Bottom line, it's too pricey for me at these levels, but if it fell back to the low 80s, I might get more compelled. So instead of directly buying more PG at these prices, I'm happy to let my drip buy them indirectly. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on PG? Are you going to buy, sell, hold, or keep looking? Alright, let's jump into the dividends. So I hold Kimberly Clark in my tax-sheltered IRA and my taxable brokerage. Since I've turned on my drips for KMB in both accounts, altogether it bought another 4.1 shares of itself, taking me from about 541.6 shares to 545.7 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $16.89 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding Kimberly Clark in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by $67.57 a year. But it should be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and I believe they will increase it. Let's see how this looks in the spreadsheet. Okay, so this is a copy of my monthly dividend tracker where I've blacked out some of the cells for stocks you haven't seen. And here is my combined payment from, from Kimberly Clark on January 3rd of 2020 at $557.87. So that's what I've received so far. And then this is a copy of my quarterly and it shows in January I've gotten that $557.87 payment. Finally, if you learned anything or enjoyed this video, then please don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment. Including your partner number is a simple way to thank me for making this free deep analysis video of Procter & Gamble. Adding your partner number to your comment helps me be able to do shoutouts and visual acknowledgements of my subscribers and a news ticker who have watched and commented on most of my videos. With this Procter & Gamble video, I'm hashtag partner28 because I've watched all my videos from start to end as well as left a comment. Thanks, and I'll see you in my next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double-checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.